And welcome. Hello. Mere Mortals Podcast. Merely Mortals. What is it called? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Cut. Rewind. Okay. Hello and welcome to Hello. I'm Sam. <laughs> and I'm Diana. And that's and Diana. That's Sam. And this is Merely Mortal Podcast. No. What is it called? Thank you for being here. Really? Yes, really you're right. Okay, it is. You really got it right. Podcast. Thank you. You're Thank good. you for returning to us. <laughs> Thank you for returning to us. How's everyone been? Hopefully you had a not overly dysfunctional yeah, Thanksgiving. I'm always the problem child. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope you're having a holly jolly, joyful season. Whatever. Whatever it is you celebrate, I hope it is filled with the joy that is the cold weather because that is what brings me joy. Yeah, I live in um, LA, so it's pretty bright and sunny and warm right now. Hasn't been hasn't been too cold yet, but we are getting there soon. One of my favorite feelings in the world is when it's been cold and rainy. I actually love the rain. But then the sun peeks out for a little bit and the sun's not like overbearing or too hot. It's just like a warm. It's like just a nice little hug. Nice little hug from the sun. Wait, I didn't even tell you what happened this morning. So I woke up with my dog, speaking of being outside. Um, and, you know, it's a weekend. So there's not a lot of people up bright and early in the morning. But, you know, I take my dog out and I'm walking down the street and there's these two people in a car and like they're passed out with their mouths open the like windows are rolled down the girl's hand is like halfway into her handbag and i'm like hello oh they like like, not nodded out yeah i don't know if they had a big night drinking if i don't know what happened but they weren't responding so i saw my neighbor across the street and she's like one of those that will be like i'll call like um, you know, she's, <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, uh, Bianca, like, uh, maybe I shouldn't say her name, but anyways, I <laughs> asked her to, I said, Hey, you see those people over there? And she's like, Oh, that doesn't look right. And they were also parked in like a red zone, like where the fire hydrant was like on top of that. So we ended up calling the like fire department and police and they were alive, thankfully, but definitely they were like under the influence of something and the police just like kind of like, Oh, they're alive and just like left. <laughs> That's very, very, and I'm like, well, what if they them. drive off? Like they obviously are in no state to like be driving, you know? Yeah. Wow. It was just like, yeah, it's just a very interesting morning. And I have never had that happen to me before. I haven't had to do that yet. So 10 years living in the neighborhood first time. So one time when I was like 21, I was working on a music video shoot and this girl and I made friends and we got in her car because it was our break and she was like, oh, I'm going to just like shoot up really quick. Do you want some? And then she just like shot her what? up. What? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm good. Stop. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. 
with uh, meth. I'd never seen anyone inject themselves with meth before. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of like doing drugs on the job, have you seen that documentary Telemarketers on HBO? No. Oh, dude, you have to watch it. It's like The Office, but like bad. Like, like not silly fun. It's like, dude, they're like doing drugs in the office. They're basically it, what it is, is there are these people working at like a telemarketing agency. And so they'll call asking your, for your donations. But sometimes they'll say that like, hey, I'm so and so with the police department, like a specific police, like New Jersey or whatever, but they really aren't. And um, so a lot of the times they're almost scamming these people out of money. And um, but a lot of them are like, you know, ex-convicts. So what other jobs are they going to get? Right. Yeah. So they basically but it is wild. Like and this kid, he gets a job, I think, straight out of high school there. And he brings a camcorder because this is like back in the 90s, I think, or early 2000s. And he brings a camcorder to work and he's recording everyone. And. So they use a lot of his footage. It's just wild. So basically at this point, they realize what they're doing is wrong. And they're like, you know what? We're going to whistleblow. And so they it basically documents them like trying to reach out and get this company that they used to work for. And, you know, like, hey, what they're doing is a scam. It's wrong. And it's really good, though. But you have to watch it. It's called Telemarketers. It's a wild documentary. Okay. There's a bunch of documentaries on my list right now. So... I, I'm excited to hear what you're talking, what you're going to tell us today. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm doing a survivor tale today. <gasps> I'm going yes. to be covering the 1945 Gremlin special plane crash. Wow, I don't think I've heard of this. Yeah, it was at the time it got like a ton of news coverage because it sort of had like a like a little like you'll see. Um, but yeah, I got a ton of news coverage and a lot of the, um, articles that I was reading actually talked about how a bunch of other stuff happened right after it. So it was like making headlines for a week or two weeks. And then it was, uh, then they moved on to more war. Forgotten stories. about. Yeah. It's, it's one of those forgotten war stories. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'd love to hear it. So yes, yeah, so as I was saying, this one was really fun to cover. And as I did last time, I have to recommend the materials that I used as my sources, because they really just enriched the story and there was so much in it that I couldn't include in the podcast. Otherwise, it would have been eight hours long. Um, I mostly used the book called Lost in Shangri-La by Mitchell Zuckoff and then a couple of articles, which I will link in the show notes. Um, the media coverage of this event focuses largely on the only female survivor involved, Margaret Hastings. She became sort of a darling of the story for the American media at the time, so I'm going to start with Margaret and who she was. Margaret grew up in the small village of Owega, New York. She spent her childhood biking to the local swimming hole, hitchhiking to explore surrounding towns, and reading late at night. She was very smart and did well in school. Every article about her talks about how beautiful she was, from a very male, slightly sexist POV, if, if you're asking me. Um, a lot of it focused on her size and her lips and the way that she would wink at people when she answered a question. <laughs> she had two younger sisters who had both already married, but Margaret held out, still unmarried at 30, which is very uncommon for that time, 1945. Most women were married by 21, 
she told a friend, I'm not sure I'd go for the type of man who's supposed to make a good husband. After she graduated from high school, she bounced from several jobs and eventually wound up at Remington Rand, a company that turned steel into everything from typewriters to pistols. She liked the work, but she wanted to see the world and do more with her life, so she joined the Women's Army Corps as a WAC so she could do just that. Margaret was actually really tiny, only five foot two and barely a hundred pounds. She had trouble finding a uniform that fit her, so she actually wound up altering her own pants by using men's pants to make them fit her, uh, which she described in a letter written home to her father, her little home homemaking. Hey, I'm for that. I love men's clothing. I also sometimes. love men's I'll, clothing. I'll rock a men's blazer. Yeah. No problem. That's mostly what I wear nowadays, actually. Not blazers, but men's clothing. <laughs> I, I shop in the men's section at Abercrombie. Okay. Oh my gosh. So what were the WACs? Well, they initially started out as the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in 1942. And they were really a branch of the U.S. Army that was dedicated to doing secretarial work and other kinds of logistics works at Army bases throughout Europe and the Pacific. In 1943, they became an active duty unit of the Army and changed their name to the Women's Army Corps, the WAC. Margaret was stationed in a place called Hollandia in New Guinea. Oh, wow. Hollandia is now called Jayapura, and it's on the north coast of New Guinea. It was then, and even to this day, a largely uncharted deep rainforest with enormous numbers of individual native tribes, many of whom up until the 1940s had never been contacted by anyone on the outside. Wow. Wow. So there are five different kinds of jungle rot that you could suffer from and spiders the size of dinner plates. The women of the WAC said that that was the easy part. It was not an easy place to be. It was dense, heavy jungle, hot weather, and tons of insects. Ugh, I bet. Oh, gosh. Margaret was at base G, which was singled out as the worst place for the health of military women. The air surgeon actually recommended that they get one full day off per week to relieve their nervous tension that had built up. Wow. Margaret's commanding officer took this very seriously and arranged for ways to ease the tension of his subordinates. His name was Peter J. Prosson, and he seemed like an amazing, caring guy. He had a wife and children at home. He was very tender and loving, and he sent souvenirs home for his kids that he would sometimes ask his wife to hold on to until he was able to come home and watch them open himself. He would write love poems to his wife and wrote of his yearning to reunite with them. He also, which is wonderful, validated her struggles, that she had to care for the children alone, that she had Mm. to ration her gas because it was the war and they were rationing everything. And so the morning of May 13th, which was Mother's Day, he wrote her a letter talking about how sweet it would be when they next united. He said, I'm glad the time passes fairly quickly. Hope it does till I get home and then I want it to slow down. (laughs) Swoon. Oh my gosh. What a poet. Yes. (laughs) On this day, he actually had arranged for his staff a sightseeing trip to Shangri-La. So Shangri-La, a little bit of background. A pilot on a reconnaissance flight in May of 1944 first stumbled across the land. It was surrounded by tall peaks, more than 30 miles long and 10 miles wide with a river from end to end. Though it lay within 150 miles of Hollandia, no path into or out of the valley was visible from the air. 
but there was a lot of signs of human activity as the valley was home, as I said, to tens of thousands of the native tribe, Danny, spear-wielding hunter-gatherers. Explorers had made first contact with Danny seven years earlier. There were rumors that they practiced cannibalism and human sacrifice. Oh, the beauty and the isolation. You don't want to. You don't want to crash there. That's no, for sure. Not if they're cannibals. <laughs> the beauty and the isolation of the valley fascinated every American who came to Hollandia. So much so that the Army Air Forces, so much so that the Army Air Force pilots provided regular sightseeing tours. A couple of reporters who took one of those tours dubbed the valley Shangri-La, and the name stuck. But now it's known as New Guinea. On that same afternoon, May 13th, two dozen Army personnel, including five crewmen and nine WACs, boarded a C-47, nicknamed the Gremlin Special and piloted by Prossen himself. The SkyTrain took off in clear weather for what was officially termed navigational training. Not the little sightseeing tour that it actually was. Right. Still had to be productive. Right. Or pretend to be productive. Pretend to be productive. (laughs) We're just going to say we're doing some navigational training. Yes. (laughs) Margaret was actually supposed to have a date that night with a man named Wally Fleming. He'd gotten the keys to a Jeep, so they had plans to drive to a secluded beach for a little ocean swim. But Margaret was desperate to visit Shangri-La. Everybody wanted to see it. So she accepted the invitation, confident that she'd make it home in time for her date. Mm Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, she does not make it to her date. (laughs) So at 2 p.m., they all loaded into the C-47 that would be flying them on their sightseeing tour for what should have been a three-hour tour. Prossen let the girls... A three-hour tour. Three-hour tour. Is that a song? Have you watched Gilligan's Island? No, is that a song from it? You've never seen Gilligan's Island? I've seen, like, references to Gilligan's Island, but never... Okay, maybe I'm just an old-ass millennial. It's an old show that my parents, I used to watch it as a kid, and I had the skipper. I remember it being on TV, yeah, like MASH and Gilligan's Island and all those black and white I honestly think that part of the lyrics to the opening song is a three-hour tour. What if Gilligan's Island is about the new... It could be. We'll listen to it. We'll listen to the song after this. Okay, sorry if you can hear me moving. Okay, so... Prossen had the girls load into the plane first. There were nine WACs in total and 11 men, and the rest were crew members. So 24 people in total. Oh, that's a good amount. Margaret. So not like a tiny plane. It was like passenger. No, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, I'm going to describe the plane a little bit more in detail. Okay, um, cool. Perfect. Margaret wanted to make sure she got the best view, so she tested out a few seats, starting with directly <laughs> behind the cockpit. She was kind of playing musical chairs. Um, so she yeah. started, yeah, she started behind the cockpit, but the view was obstructed by, you know, like flight, flight, um, the equipment, yes, or... thank you, the equipment. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she headed to the very back of the plane. And so as I was saying, I'll describe the plane. This was the type of plane that you see in like every army movie ever where mm-hmm. like the seats are facing each other and they're all lined against the wall and they have like the, uh, uh, right, yeah. the harness, like a roller coaster. Like they have like those harnesses on. Got it. Um, okay. Yeah. So you could see the people who were sitting directly across from you. Her close friend okay. and double date partner, Laura Besley, sat across from her. Okay. Also aboard the plane were identical twins, John and Robert McCollum. 
Robert sat in the front near the pilots, and John sat in the back right next to Margaret. Prosson mm. was the pilot, and Major George Nicholson was his co-pilot. He was only 24 and a much less experienced flyer. The other pilot, the other, the other pilots that have explored flying over this before had drawn maps of the land to signify where mountains were. So, though neither Prosson nor Nicholson had made this flight before, they were going off of the maps that were drawn by these previous explorers. So both of them had n- never. Ha- so both of the pilots, are, you're saying, never flew before no and they were not even like sitting co-pilot as somebody else showed them the land so this was brand new for them as well oh my goodness okay not not the starting to starting to think this uh may not be the best idea here (laughs) as they cruised (laughs) toward the valley colonel prosson made a fateful decision he unbuckled his seatbelt and walked back into the cabin The point of the trip, after all, was to let his staff know that he cared about them and their morale, how they were feeling. So he wanted to, you know, go hang back with them and and socialize a little bit. It was a bonding opportunity, after all. Uh, After all. (laughs) It was a bond. (laughs) It was a bonding opportunity, after all. Yet, in light of the uncharted mountains, the changeable weather, and the relative inexperience of his co-pilot, Major George Nicholson, Prosson's move from the pilot seat was definitely ill-advised. And now that socializing had started, everybody was unseatbelted and walking around the cabin, <sighs> roaming around. Margaret was just enjoying herself. She thought that Prosson was actually showing off a little bit and didn't realize what was happening. <laughs> she thought he was just like, you know, like getting up to like, be like, I'm the captain and blah, blah, blah. You know, be a man. Do that, do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Shortly after three, the plane went down. The exact cause of the crash is unknown. It seems that it was low-hanging clouds causing poor visibility that caused them to crash into a mountain. So they thought they were flying over the mountains, but because of the clouds, they didn't see that they were actually going straight into a mountaintop. The cabin... Oh, my God. Yeah. The camp. Sorry. The cabin crumbled forward towards the cockpit. The walls of the fuselage collapsed inward, and both wings were ripped off, and the tail snapped off as well. Nicholson had managed to point the nose of the plane upwards in his attempt to clear the mountain ridge, so the C-47 hit the mountain hit the mountain at an upward angle instead of head-on. Because of this, fire flew through the cabin, but it did not explode on impact. So anyone not oh immediately gosh. killed or mortally wounded would actually stand a chance if they were able to get out of the plane. John McCollum was thrown all around the plane and had actually blacked out. When he came to, he was on his hands and knees halfway up to the cockpit, surrounded by flames. Searching for an escape route, he saw a bright white light where the tail used to be. The roof of the cabin had been flattened down, picture a stepped-on can of soda. His only option was to crawl toward the light, hoping it was towards the outside and not towards more fire. Because he could barely see anything. The plane was so crushed. All he could see was light and not where it led. When he climbed out, he was thankfully in the mountain jungle with barely a scratch on him. He took in all the horror around him and immediately thought of his twin brother who was still on board. And everybody else who was still on board. And he was sure that they were all dead. And thought to himself, this is a heck of a place to be, 165 miles from civilization, all by myself on a Sunday afternoon. 
Meanwhile, Margaret had also been thrown all through the cabin. Margaret said that her first impulse had been to pray, but then she grew angry. As she tumbled about, she took it personally, mad that her dream trip to Shangri-La had been spoiled by a plane crash, (sighs) and she still hadn't seen any natives. What? So these direct thoughts, the really cool thing about this is Margaret and John both kept journals. So we get a lot Mm -hmm. of what was going on inside their mind and like firsthand experiences of everything that was going on during this time. Oh, my God. And like when they crashed, she wasn't wearing her seatbelt, right? Yeah. That's why her and John both were like flown all around. Oh, my God. So when she finally stopped tumbling and could get a sense of where she was, she realized that she was lying on top of a man who had his arms around her. She doesn't know when or how that happened, but all she knew was she was laying on top of a dead man with his arms wrapped around her and was surrounded by flames. She pried herself loose. I mean, and you can only imagine, right, like how hard he would be gripping her. So she had to pry himself, oh pry God. herself loose and crawl away. But she didn't even know which way. So she's crawling through this crushed airplane the same way McMullen was, hoping that she's going into the direction of escape. Oh, my God. Luckily, she went the right way and climbed out, finding McCollum. And then they heard Laura Besley screaming, and McCollum went in and pulled her out. And then he went back in to try to rescue more people. He pulled out a badly burned woman named Eleanor. And he was unable to go back inside at this point and doubtful that anyone else was even alive. So he gave up. And then Sergeant Kenneth Decker came from around the side of the plane. He was badly hurt with a deep gash on his forehead. So deep you could see the bone of his skull. He had burns on both of his legs and all over his backside. And his arm was broken at the elbow. This also happened to be his 34th birthday. Oh, my God. Yeah. Happy birthday. So even though he was only a lieutenant, McCollum outranked everybody else, so he took command. Margaret was standing there in shock, so he snapped her back and told her to take care of the injured. Eleanor's entire body was covered in burns, and Margaret knew it was too late for her, and she was going to die. Eleanor, oh. as, as Margaret comforted her, Eleanor said to her, let's sing. And so they tried to sing, but Eleanor's throat was too badly injured for her to even get the sound out. Oh, my god! She wouldn't make it through the night. Margaret's feet were badly burned and cut, so she took off her undergarments and made makeshift bandages out of them. She also had really bad burns on her legs. Her friend Laura actually died their second night out in the jungle in her sleep. So Margaret woke up to find Laura dead next to her. And she actually... So Eleanor's gone. Yeah, Eleanor's now gone. Laura's gone. And now Laura's gone. Um, oh so now God. it's just Decker, McCollum, and Margaret left. Margaret actually wound up taking Laura's shoes because she didn't have hers. And so she oh. felt really guilty about taking them, but she knew she had I to know. because they had to relocate. So now only three of the 24 people that were left on the plane had survived this terrible crash. And as I said, they needed to relocate because they were completely invisible to any rescue planes that would be coming to find them because of all of the trees and the dense jungle forest. The lush. Yeah. Yeah. So they decided to hike to where they wouldn't be hidden by those trees. Margaret's burns were starting to get infected and she was in a lot of pain. And Decker was also suffering through his injuries. They were both trying to persevere and be strong because they still had a really long trek ahead of them, 
but it was definitely taking a lot out of them and infection was the biggest concern on their minds. Hmm. The only food that they had was some charm candies that were standard issue for the soldiers' packs and some water. They had actually been able to salvage a couple packs from the plane wreckage and they were that oh, was where wow. they were getting these candies. Um, so back at the base, when the Gremlin special missed its estimated return time, they started looking into where they might have crashed and thinking about how they were going to recover them. Wednesday, May 16th, so three days after the crash, around 11 a.m., they finally made it to open air. Wednesday, May 16th, around 11 a.m., after three days of hiking and three days after the crash, Margaret, Decker, and McCollum finally made it to open air, where they could see the sky and not the trees of the dense jungle. Not long after they made it, a B-17 bomber flew over, but he didn't see them at first. And an hour later, another one flew over. McCollum ordered them to grab some tarps that they had also recovered from the plane, and they spread out a bright yellow tarp so that the B-17 pilot would see it. Finally, he saw it, and he tipped his plane wings at them to let him know that they had seen them. Okay. So now they can finally breathe some what of a sigh of release and fantasize about what they would do once they were back in Hollandia. Oh, my gosh. So it's been three days. Three days, yes. What they didn't know was that they were being watched by the natives. Oh, no. So that whole first three days that they've been there, they kept hearing what sounded like a pack of dogs barking. Not knowing where it was coming from, but they kept hearing these high-pitched yapping sounds. Turns out it was the natives who had been hiding in the trees and watching them. Oh, you... Sorry. (laughs) I'm like... I don't know why, but I'm like being really just like triggered by Really? (laughs) This sounds like a freaking horror story. Like this sounds like a scary movie or something. Like people in trees watching you. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I don't like this. So as they're out in this, so as they're out in this more open area, the natives finally reveal themselves from the trees. They they come out into their little opening a little bit, and for a while they're all just staring at each other: Margaret, McCollum, and Decker, and then the natives on the other side. (sighs) McCollum tells Margaret and Decker to smile and wave. The natives actually, so their names are Danny. They're the Danny people. Um, They beckoned them over to them, but because Margaret's legs and feet were so badly injured, she couldn't even walk. So instead, Nicole and Margaret and Decker waved the Danny people over. Oh. Nicola met the leader, Wimiyuk Wandik, of the tribe in the middle. They shook hands, and this immediately broke the tension. And the leader was introduced to Margaret and Decker, and the rest of the Danny people followed suit. It's all very friendly, so you can relax. <laughs> okay. okay. This is how Margaret described them in her diary. This is a direct quote. Far from being seven feet tall, they averaged from five feet four inches to five feet seven inches in height. And certainly, only on close observation, they didn't look very fierce. This is racist. (laughs) They were black as the ace of spades and naked as birds in feathering time. Again, this is the 40s. Yeah, right, right. Their clothing consisted of a thong around their waist from which a gourd was suspended in front and a huge triple leaf hung tail-like in back. Sorry, I was like, were those gourds or were those balls? (laughs) (laughs) 
both. Maybe uh, she got confused. They were they were pretty. Um, there'll be a little story that I tell later. She's probably on. looking at a nut sack. No, they you might be looking at a nut sack there, Margaret. They were Just they were relatively modi- modest about their manhood. They kept it covered. <laughs> okay. They actually nicknamed the chief Pete. So from here on out, we will be referring to him <laughs> as Pete. Pete, Pete, the the native Danny chief. Eventually they left and they and Margaret Decker and McCollum were left to sleep in the clearing. Margaret actually woke up in the middle of the night to find Pete hovering over her. Oh, she she was in and out because she was so sick. So she couldn't stay awake. So she she fell back asleep. But the next morning when she woke up, McCollum and Decker told her that they had stayed all night long and watched over them. Okay. In the morning, a plane arrived and dropped off their first cargo load of supplies. Still, Margaret Decker and McCollum had no idea the obstacles that were actually preventing them from being immediately rescued. The problem was that there was no landing strip for the planes to land. Oh, for the plane, Yeah, right. so they couldn't yeah. even get down there to come get them. And they couldn't oh, uh, get a helicopter God. down there because the weather was too unpredictable. So they're going to be stuck down there for a long time while they problem solve this they can't just send like a land search team or something to search by land i know it's dense jungle and everything but so they know where they are they just can't get the plane down there and then get the plane back up so they have to figure out how they're going to do that Uh, wow boat i don't know (laughs) no water (laughs) So in that same cargo load that they dropped them was also a radio that allowed them to communicate with the rescue team. And they finally found out just how difficult and involved this rescue is going to be. So the three survivors are aware that it's not as easy. Yes. As they initially thought. Yeah, yeah. So they're aware that it's going to take a minute. Yes. Now they know it's going to take okay. some time. They were able to be like, we're okay, dot, dot, dot. Just give us food and medical supplies, help. (laughs) But yeah, we'll wait. (laughs) Um, So the Danny people returned again to observe them. Margaret said it was like this childlike wonder. And they actually had built themselves a small fire to keep warm. And were smoking cigars while watching the survivors. McCollum had, (sighs) they had cigarettes that they had recovered from the plane, but no lighter. So McCollum walked over to ask to borrow a lighter for their cigarettes, and they all smoked on their own sides of the clearing, just sort of like hanging out, co-hanging, you know, cohabitating. (laughs) Um, McCollum and Decker, despite how badly injured Decker was, went off to gather the rest of the supplies that were dropped for them. So because they're dropping the supplies from like high above, they're not landing directly at their feet they it's like these huge cargo bins that are landing in the forest and they in the jungle and they have to go recover it and find it It takes a little bit of like um recovery mission search a little bit of a search mission um so yeah mccollum and decker went off to gather the rest of the supplies and margaret went off in the other direction to see if there was any supplies that she could find she she wanted to grab them before the natives were able to take them but she was in too much pain to walk, so she crawled on her hands and knees to go oh, look my- in the direction of where the other load was dropped. And Margaret actually happened upon one of their villages where one of the cargo loads had unfortunately fallen through the roof of one of the Danny people's huts. Oh, no. And one of the crates landed on one of the native's pet pigs. 
killing it instantly, completely crushing it. And the girl who it belongs to was very brokenhearted and devastated. And she never even received any apology or compensation for this loss. So the person who wrote the book that I was doing a lot of my research from actually went back Uh to New Guinea to interview some of the sons and daughters of the people who interacted with Margaret Decker and McMullum. So we have a little bit of their perspective of everything that was happening too. Um, And pigs are a very ritualistic part of this tribe. It's very important to them. It's a very important currency and just um, like symbol for them. So that pig being crushed Mm -hmm. is like, you know, pretty devastating for them. It's a huge loss. Oh, wow. Um, Finally, once they had retrieved the cargo bins, they were able to eat and tend to their wounds. And this is when their spirit sort of dampened a lot because they got to really, they had time to and energy to take in how badly injured Decker was. Um, okay. And at some point, medics were supposed to drop in to help them, but they were worried that they wouldn't even get there on time because he was so badly hurt. He had that huge gash on his head and these horrible burns all over his back and his butt. As the days went on, planes continued to drop supplies for them, food, clothing, blankets, and finally they got a proper meal dropped onto them, and it would be their first proper meal that they would have in six days, since the six days they'd been on that island or in the jungle. So they're not being fed by the tribe. They're just, like, lightly interacting with them, but they're still having to, like... So they're not in the village. They're just like on the outskirts of the village. Yeah, they're on the outskirts of the village. And the the Danny people keep popping in to see what's up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Pete comes to visit again, this time bringing his wife. They chat for a little bit. And and the Danny people speak their own language. So they can't really understand each other. Um, Mm -hmm. They're speaking in their language. And the survivors are speaking in their language. And they're sort of signing each other, signing to each Mm -hmm. other to, to communicate as best as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after they chat for a little bit Pete and his wife go off again and they come back again as if uh, having met them his wife sort of approved of them was like yeah they're cool and they brought with them <laughs> is that what she said <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> so when Pete and his wife came back they brought the feast of a pig sweet potatoes and bananas was it crate pig <laughs> it wasn't crate pig <laughs> <laughs> but the survivors were so full from the um the supplies that they had received from right. the home base that they couldn't <gasps> even accept the offering they used sign to be like was- no thank you we're too sick full and tired to join in but this was a huge missed opportunity to become bonded with them Because an anthropologist said that pig feasts are a very important function of their society. At every major ceremony, pigs are given from one person to another and then killed and eaten. Uh, This is a quote from that anthropologist. A single man in his lifetime is bound to his fellows by the ties of hundreds of pigs, which he and his people have exchanged with others and their people. Pete was understanding, though, and he told all the natives to let them be and go back. (laughs) Go back to their village. (laughs) Pete seems pretty chill. Pete so seems far. like the best. Okay, so the other really cool thing about Pete is the Danny people, the men take multiple wives, but the only wife Pete has or wanted was his girl. 
So he just has one. Okay. <laughs> so we kind of like Pete. Yeah, Pete's Pete's it. Pete. Finally. So Pete Pete tells everyone to chill. Yeah. Basically. Pete's like, chill, y'all. Um Okay. Finally, the next day, after being drenched by an overnight rainstorm, the survivors saw the two brave medics parachuting out of a plane. They were Filipino medics okay. who were working with um the American army during World War II. Mm-hmm. Corporal Camillo Ramirez and Sergeant Benjamin Bellotto. It was a very dangerous jump because of the weather conditions and the lust jungle, but fortunately they both landed unharmed, but surrounded by the natives. Oh no. <laughs> so they just landed right down there where the natives were hanging out. Oh. Pete happened to be there where they landed and Ramirez was able to communicate his mission with more like sign language and, you know, lots of pointing and gesturing. And Pete instructed a group of young boys to lead them to where their survivors were camped out. Margaret later wrote in her diary how emotional it was to see them and how she just cried and cried. She said, when the sergeant walked into camp, there arrived to take care of us one of the most kind and gentle men God ever put on earth. I want to say right now that when better men are born, they will undoubtedly be Filipinos. If ever they oh. or their islands need aid or a champion, they only have to send a wire to enlist me in the cause. All right. Yeah. They collected the rest of their supplies, built a fire, and made them hot chocolate. Oh. Then they went to work on properly taking care of their burns and wounds. They had gangrene pretty bad, and it would be a very long Ugh. and painful process to treat them. Okay, trigger warning for gross descriptions. Okay. Bellotto and Ramirez would peel off and cut away the rotted skin, <gasps> wash the wound with peroxide, add the ointment, and then dress the wound. And they would repeat this day after day. So just don't And this is imagine. for Margaret? This is for both Margaret and Decker. Because they both are very oh, badly burned. Burns. Yeah. Oh, my, and burns hurt so bad. Yeah. They're painful. They hurt so bad. It's just like a nonstop pain that you can't ignore. It's awful. Oh, but they also can get infected quite easily. So mm -hmm. they have to, I mean... They have no choice. And they were infected. Both Margaret and um, Decker had infected wounds, infected burns. Yeah. So again, meanwhile, back at the base, the rescue mission was still underway. Captain Earl, Wat Cap Captain Earl Walter was establishing a crew who would jump down into the jungle to establish a base camp for the survivors and the rescue crew. They landed very close to one of the native villages, known to the natives as Wosi. The Danny people surrounded the group, and as the two groups came close for a good look at one another, the natives gently stroked the soldiers' arms and legs, backs, and chest. They also engaged in what Walter described as a lot of hugging. It was driving them all crazy because they couldn't figure out what the hell the natives were doing. And they were murmuring as they massaged Walter and his men up and down. Okay. Walter thought that they thought that they were women. And that's why they were rubbing themselves all over them. So, so he made every one of his men take their clothes off and walk around naked to prove their manhood. But the Danny people were not confused of their gender. 
they were confused as to why they were exposing themselves and taking their clothes <laughs> off because in the Danny tribe, men never fully expose themselves in public. Uh-oh. What, what was going on is they were confused by the men's clothing because, you know, in the army, you wear army fatigues, right? They, they blend right. in with the land. So right. at first they thought it was mud, but then realized it was like... <laughs> So they first thought it was mud when they got when they like saw them from far away. But then getting closer to them, they were like, oh, it's like some soft, removable skin. And so that's why they were rubbing themselves all over them, because they were trying to figure out what what this was. They had never seen something like that before. Clothing. Yeah. Clothing. (laughs) (laughs) The Danny people were just excited and curious to have them there. And they even started helping to retrieve the supply drops and bring them to the base camp. This is my favorite little little bit from the book. <laughs> so one day when Margaret was just chilling at the clearing. So just to be clear, the soldiers that had parachuted in were there to establish a base camp. Margaret and the other survivors and the medics were still in the clearing. So the base camp is not where Margaret was hanging out. The base camp, yeah. So the base camp is where they would be clearing away the jungle to create a sort of landing strip or takeoff strip. And Margaret and her people were over here at the clearing that they had found. So these are two different locations. So one day when Margaret was just chilling, one of the Danny people came running up to her and was very upset and was gesturing wildly. And he led her to a huge 50 foot tree where one of the other natives had taken one of the open parachutes of the guys who had jumped in and was holding it above his head because he was going to jump out of the tree and float down like they had. But this would have killed him. And fortunately, they were able to persuade him down. (laughs) But I just think it's like the cutest thing in the world to picture him just being all excited. Like, I want to do that too. Yeah, that's how it works. That's what that's there for. (laughs) Um, another time Margaret got a message from Wally the guy who was supposed to be her date before the the plane crash and this is a quote from her diary as soon as I knew he was worried half to death I was pleased as punch (laughs) (laughs) that's accurate though there's so very accurate there's so many good little like (laughs) stories and and bits in this book it was really hard to choose what to share because a lot of their time spent there was just you know hanging out with each other and and Mm -hmm. preparing themselves to be rescued while interacting Mm -hmm. with this tribe of people um another story that i really like from the book is one of the wac officers at the base found out that one of the survivors was a female so she had them ask when margaret's last period was and so she can send supplies yes, or something. Yeah. So oh, Margaret McMullen told them to drop off some co-text. And it was this really complicated back and forth full of bureaucracy and oh that that goes to this person. No, you're supposed to tell this person. No, they're supposed to handle that. Like it just like they were making it really difficult to just get co-text sent down to them. Um mm-hmm. And so finally, the radio operator who had to receive all these messages got so fed up and said, this plane is leaving in one hour. And if I don't have co-text co- from you folks, I'm calling General Clement at Far East Air Service Command Headquarters. Some some big threat, I guess. And that day, the cargo drop included a half dozen boxes of sanitary napkins. And in the days that followed, the supplies doubled, then tripled. 
McCollum wow. said, I bet we had 20 boxes of Kotex down there every day. Wow. For the one for the for one, one woman. Margaret. Yeah. Maybe they can give the rest to the Danny people. So later, when the injured were finally well enough to travel to the base camp, McCollum had the brilliant idea to use those extra pads as padding to put under the shoulder shelves of the packs that they were carrying because they had a long way to hike and their bags were very heavy full of supplies. After a four-day hike that was very difficult for the injured, Decker and Margaret, and even McCollum, who was, you know, exhausted in his own ways, uninjured, but still, you know, right. he fell out of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, pretty traumatic. Back in the U.S., the story was taking off. As I said at the beginning, Margaret was the star of the show. Everyone wanted, to, everyone wanted to hear about her adventures in this uncharted land. Every report talked of her beauty and her strength and her tenacity in the face of this dreadful accident. But everyone involved in this story played such a key role in their survival and rescue, especially the medics and John, John McMullen. So it's important that like everybody you know, really gets their kudos and, and their name out right. there because it was bigger than Margaret, and yet Margaret was the story um one day filmmaker and journalist alex can was dropped down to the rescue site to document the rest of their time there and the rescue itself he uh he was the type of filmmaker who was like oh that's going on i'm i'm there and so he volunteered to to cover the case um but he was really scared to jump out of the plane and it took him a few attempts to psych himself up enough to actually do the jump that he and he was so scared that he drank an entire bottle of whiskey oh <laughs> before jumping out of the plane. Are these like army style parachutes that they're using too? Yeah. Oh yeah, those are pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Um and those on the ground who were watching Alexander Can jump out of the plane said that he was oddly limp as he was coming down and they were concerned that something was wrong because he was flopping around so much that they were scared it was going to interfere with the air of his parachute and it would deflate. Um, But thankfully, he made it to the ground. He landed spread eagle on his back in some bushes and was so out of it that they thought he was dead. But they went up to him and he was like sort of like moaning and mumbling and they're like, this man is drunk. Um, the next morning, the survivors and paratroopers indulged Alex Can in his role as filmmaker because he he missed the survivors' entrance into the base camp, and he wanted that arrival to be a part of his film's plot. So they recreated the hike down the mountain with empty packs <laughs> and their entrance into the camp. This um whole thing is on YouTube, so it's a fifteen minute video oh, really? on YouTube that you can watch. Yeah. They made them hike for 15 minutes just to recreate the entrance. The video is compiled of a bunch of stuff. Oh, yeah. got it. <laughs> um, Such a filmmaker thing to do, though. It's like, all right, we're going to now we're going to recreate this or it's just so typical. The rescue plan that army planners ultimately conceived was to land a Waco CG for a glider on a landing strip. The one that the crew on the ground had been carving out of the jungle. Load the survivors okay. and the paratroopers aboard and then yank the engineless aircraft back into the air. So it would stay being towed the whole time. It's going to stay attached to this other aircraft. 
but it has the wings so it's gliding it's like a toy plane like like a kid's arm flying the plane through the air but it's being towed by i didn't even know you could do that i know i didn't either it sounds super sketchy and like you have to get the timing just right um this was accomplished by having a low flying c-47 fitted with a dangling steel hook snatch that the gliders and and the gliders tow rope would hook onto that and that's how it was going to be towed out of the jungle the rescuers were going to suspend it above the ground by the two poles. So two poles on either side of the glider that the C-47 is going to hook onto and then pull out. Okay. Again, watch the video. They will show you because it's hard to describe. Wow. Okay. So after 47 days in the jungle in a bond formed with the Danny people, Margaret Hastings, John McCollum, and Kenneth Decker were finally rescued alongside the brave paratroopers and medics that came to their aid, and filmmaker Alex Can, who captured the whole thing. Like I said, it's on YouTube. You can watch the rescue and see Margaret interacting with the queen of the Danny people. Um, because Margaret was the only woman there, and the Danny people actually have women in charge, they thought that Margaret was their leader. So she invited <laughs> Margaret back to her village and gave her gifts, and they just like hung out, and she showed Margaret around. <laughs> All on YouTube. And yeah, when they got back, they were treated like celebrities they got to tour margaret had an all expenses paid trip to new york on a date and wow. yeah and now that story is just forgotten in history but for a little while did she ever go on her date with that one guy <laughs> she did she had her date yeah she had her date with wally she did yeah yeah and that is the story of <laughs> no she married someone else um, oh. <laughs> and that is the story of the new gremlin plane crash. Wow. I honestly. Not the new gremlin plane crash. The new Guinea gremlin special <laughs> plane crash. <laughs> that was really good. So many. Such a roller coaster of a story. Because honestly, you had, you had, for some reason, I thought you were foreshadowing when you were talking about the tribe how some tribes are cannibalistic and I'm like, oh shit, they're about to get freaking eaten. All right, Sam, take us out. We hope you've been inspired by our tales of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And remember, stay safe because in the end, we're just mortals. Until next time. Take care. Bye. 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 <laughs>